Let's stand for the reading of God's Word and get into chapter 2 uh, this morning. Haggai chapter 2, you can, again, you can find it on page 791 as we look at how we ought to be considering God's ways, especially when it comes to our perspectives in life. Let's see what the scriptures say, the first nine verses of the second chapter of Haggai. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to the son of Jehozadak, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place... I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the wonderful example of our young people who desire to bring you glory and honor. Lord, let us live to the example that they've shown us. Let us be true to your word. Let us be active in our sharing of our faith. Let us be hungry for a discipleship relationship with you. Oh Lord, we pray that you would work in the lives of our young people that they would have deep and, and wonderful walks with you, that they would be an active part of this church and the fellowship, Lord, that we would not see them as uh, just an addendum to the more important things, Lord, that we do, but we'd see them central. And Lord, I pray that for all of our young people, our children, Lord, that they would be blessed by the teaching of the word, by the fellowship of your people. Uh, by their involvement in this place. Now, Lord, as we come to your word, I pray that you'd speak to us. Lord, we need our perspectives to be changed. Lord, our perspectives are skewed. Our perspectives are built on uh, the shifting sands of, of the world. Uh, they're focused in on self, Lord. We need our perspectives changed so that we can live for you. We can bring glory to you. Father, that we'd be obedient to you. But in order for that to happen, we must see the world with your eyes, with your heart. We must see the work that we've done through your perspective and not our own. Teach us through the example of the people in Haggai's day that we may know how to get beyond discouragement and the trials and tribulations that come our way to be obedient and to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. We look forward to how you're going to teach us this, Lord. Fill us with your spirit now, we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Today, as we look at the second, first part of the second chapter of the book of Haggai, we come so under the heading of asking God to uh, fix our perspectives. Perspectives are an important thing. In some ways, 
Perspectives must come before priorities. Even though we preached last week on the importance of priorities, perspectives must be first because for us to have the right priorities, we have to have the right perspective. We have to see the world in a certain way and our priorities will be set by the perspective or worldview that we have in living our lives. The perspectives of the people in Haggai's day needed to be changed. Our perspectives need to be changed today as well. Can we trust that God has a better way than we do in living life? Can we trust God that his ways are truly higher than our ways? That his thoughts are higher than our thoughts? That even though the world advertises that you can get the good life and all that it involves, that their way truly just leads to destruction? You see, in our text today, we're going to be pushed to our limits with regards to how we view not only our life, but our ministry for the kingdom. You see, perspectives are of great importance. I was once watching, I do this every once in a while, I watch uh, the TED Talk. Some of you may be aware of that. It's an opportunity for people to share on different subjects. And, and one of the TED Talks that I was watching on uh, was speaking, a man was speaking on the issue of perspectives. And he defined perspectives this way. He said, perspectives are what we have in our mind and hold in conviction. The idea here is that the, what we are thinking about, how we funnel or filter our lives and the things that we do is a part of our perspective, but it's not just how we funnel it through, but what we hold in conviction. Now, the Bible doesn't have a Greek word for perspectives. So how do we know what our perspective, our godly perspective should be like? Well, while the word isn't there in the Greek language, nor is it found in the scriptures, we see words that are like perspective. You see, we are called to have a godly, biblical perspective. Every time you see in the New Testament that we are to have the mind of Christ, that means we are to have the perspective of God. That our perspective, our worldview, the way we look at life should be funneled through, that we should hold the convictions of Jesus Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul speaks about this in the book of Philippians. You don't have to turn there, but Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, the Apostle Paul says, I have a perspective. Notice what he says, or listen to what he says in verse 13. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul's perspective was that life wasn't found in the here and now, but it was in the journey towards eternity. And everything that he did, all that he was a part of, was funneled through that perspective. That whatever honored God, whatever allowed him to grow deeper in his relationship with Jesus Christ, Everything he did was going to be funneled through that. And so the things that he had done before, he's going to put behind him. He's going to strain forward with that perspective towards the crown of righteousness that's going to come in eternity. Now notice what he says. This isn't his perspective alone, but he says the following. He says, here's the thing. Let those of us who are mature think or have this perspective. You and I need to have a perspective. We all do. We all have that worldview, that which we funnel life through. 
And we have a choice to make, and we've used these doors behind me as a word picture. When it comes to our perspective, as we look at life and try to understand the things that are happening in our lives, will we walk through the perspective of our ways, saying we're going to look through it through our eyes or through the eyes of God? You see, the people in Haggai's day, in Haggai chapter 2, had come to realize that obedience was the right way. God had spoken through his prophet Haggai. And he said, now for 16 years my temple has laid in ruins. You said you were going to build the house of God. You came with that purpose in mind. And now for 16 years the house of God has remained unfinished. And Haggai comes and he says, hey, let's get rid of your priorities and let's start doing it God's way. Let's get to God's business. That first message, notice just for a moment in the book of Haggai, that you have some date markers, if you will. Notice in chapter 1, at the beginning of the book, it tells us in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came. Then notice at the end of chapter 1, verse 15, that on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Then notice at the beginning of chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. Here's how great the scriptures are. The scriptures say exactly, with pinpoint accuracy, when the messages and when the people of God moved. To help you understand what that is in our day and age, the first message, chapter 1, verse 1, takes place on August 29th. The next message would come at the start of a chapter 2. That next message would come October 17th. And so here the people of God, here on uh, August 29th, that they need to obey and rebuild the temple. And they start the process. They start doing it God's way. They start building up the temple. But by October 17th, God's word comes. And where does he find the people? He finds them discouraged. He finds them in some ways wanting to give up. In a matter of six weeks, they go from being obedient people to being a discouraged people. Well, what would cause that kind of discouragement? They're building the house of God. They should be excited about it. Ezra chapter 3 gives us a reason. If you want to understand a little bit more of what's going on in Haggai, go to the book of Ezra. And write this passage down. Ezra chapter 3 verses 11 through 13 says the following about why the people, how the, what the response of the people was. They're building the temple. There should be great excitement. And it says in verse 10, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asphah, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For God is good, and his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now let's stop there for a moment. People are excited. People are fired up. They're obeying God, and the house of the God is being built. But notice in verse 13 what transpires. I'm sorry, verse 12. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, 
and the sound was heard from far away. So here you have this celebration happening. People are excited about what God is doing, but amidst them, there's this dichotomy. There's this difference of perspective. You have the younger people who are fired up about what God is doing, and the older people are crying. Think of that for a moment. People are cheering, and then other people are crying out of sadness. What is causing it? The thing that was causing the discouragement of the older people was they had seen the glory of the first temple. And we're going to talk about that here in a moment. But what we want to deal with this morning, as we see their discouragement, is I want you to think about what is discouraging you this morning. For the older people, it was their comparison from the first temple to the second temple. But what is causing you discouragement this morning? Whatever it is, I want you to write it down on the top of your outline, and I want you to look at that and think about that as we see how God corrects the discouragement of the people of God by changing their perspective. To be able to do so, we need to see a couple things this morning. Number one, we need to see the causes of discouragement. The causes of discouragement. Why in the world were the old people discouraged? Because they had seen how great Solomon's temple was and how not so great the new temple was becoming. They saw the grandeur of Solomon's temple, all the gold and silver and finery, and they saw more of a utilitarian type of house being built. Now, it could have been nostalgia run amok. Not too long ago, I was at the video game store with my children, and they wanted to buy a video game, and I said, okay, you've worked hard enough, you guys can have a video game. And I remember not, not too long into the process, I saw this game that looked very familiar to me. And it had the word video game classics on it. And I got fired up because I saw all these video games that I remembered, that I remembered spending hours playing. And I told the boys, hey, dad's going to buy a video game. This is the stuff that dad used to play. And, and they kind of looked at me funny saying, oh, we don't want to play this. Oh, yeah, man, when we get home, we're going to do it like we used to do it, play for hours these games. These games are so much better than the games you have now. They're so much funner. And so I remember telling the checkout lady, man, this is exciting. Dad comes in, and he's going to get a game. I tell the boys, and we're on the way home, hey, no playing your game first. It's all about me. We're going to play my game. I'm fired up. I'm excited. I'm telling Amanda, we need to cancel appointments. We need to be a part of my games. And I remember it took about five minutes to see how stupid my games really were. The graphics were terrible. The sound was abysmal. And I'm like, what in the world was I looking forward to? Why did I waste the $20 to buy this game? I understand this. When you can buy 25 game, video games for less than $20, you know you're not selling for much. Because here's the thing. I had built up into my mind how good and great things used to be. But they weren't the case. Now here's the problem. Is this what the old people were thinking when they were looking at Solomon's temple? God seems to say Solomon's temple was pretty cool. Notice in verse 3 in our text that God says, uh, asks them a question. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Uh, He says um, in there, I'm sorry, I'm in chapter 1. Who is left, chapter 2 says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? 
So are they looking and saying, well, we look back to the way the old things used to be and it was just awesome when it really wasn't? No, God seems to say, you know Solomon's temple? It was amazing. It was pretty awesome. And now you look at this house and it's as if it's nothing. And he knows the people are discouraged. God knows when his people are discouraged. And this morning I want you to know, just as he did in Haggai's day, that God knows when you're discouraged. And God sits there and he comes to us and he says, I know what you're feeling. I know how you feel. And he says, this is why he said in 1 Peter that we are to cast our anxieties on him. Because he cares for us. So notice what we see take place. We see discouragement. And God doesn't gloss over this discouragement. He knows exactly how they're feeling and he wants to address it. But before he can address it, we need to recognize some of the things that cause us discouragement through the people of Haggai's uh, example. Number one, we see in the story of Haggai that people struggled with external discouragements. External discouragements. That is, the things that were outside of themselves. Number one, as they were building the temple of God, they became discouraged, scholars say, because of the constant fear of attack. What was going on was as these people had come back to restore their kingdom, to restore their way of life, the neighboring armies would come and try to attack them. We see this in the life of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the one who is leading uh, the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. And Nehemiah tells the men who are working, in one hand, I want you to have a trowel. The trowel was to lay the grout, if you will, for the, the bricks to be laid in the wall. You're going to have a trowel in one hand, and in the other hand, you're going to have a sword. And the reason why is at any moment, at any time, there may be an attack, and you need to be ready to defend your wall uh, from the outside invaders. Knowing that someone could come at any time and hurt you and bring destruction to the place that you were building would no, no doubt bring discouragement. Well, we too are in constant fear of attack. We don't have to go very far to remember our study out of 1 Peter that says we've got an enemy. And the enemy is the devil. And he's roaming around seeking who he may devour. At any moment, at any point, we need to be building our lives with the trowel of God's word. And we also, with God's word, need to hold the sword. And we need to be ready for that attack to come at any time from any direction. Notice the second thing that they were externally discouraged about. They knew the project that they were working on wasn't going to be as nice as the original. They were probably, no doubt, looking at building the foundation, and as they were building that foundation, they see the ruin of the walls of the Temple of Solomon's day going even farther. All the while knowing whatever we're building here will never, will never be as big as the original. It will never be as nice with all of the finery and all the types of precious stone and material. We're building with the cedars of Lebanon, and they were building with gold and silver. The house we're building is nothing in comparison to the other one. Notice the next external uh, discouragement was the people around them who were constantly reminding them that what they were doing was no good. It would never live up to the past. The older I get, the more I become like the people I never wanted to be. And that is who talk about the past always being better than today. 
Well, I remember the good old days, and I remember how we used to do this, and it was so awesome when we did that. And no matter what the people today do, it will never be as good as we used to have it. And many of us live lives where we are pessimistic around those. We're critical of those who are serving around us. Parents, we do this more than we would ever want to know. I was taught this this week by my 10-year-old son. We were talking about baseball, and I'm trying to teach my son about baseball, and my son did something in the baseball game that, that he shouldn't have done, that any good ball player should know better. And my son looked at me after telling that, not telling him good game, not telling him a great job, not telling him, hey, hey, I'm proud of you. Dad goes right into critical dadness. And what I begin to tell him, well, you didn't do this. And when I was a kid, I knew to do this, and I knew to do that. And my son had to say, well, Dad, I'm just not as perfect as you are. And I had to be reminded that many times as older people, we can be critical of what our young people are doing. We can be critical where we'd say, well, I never did that as a kid. You know, the great thing about being older is that nobody who's younger than you can go back to your days of being a moron. Right? They don't have the rewind. I wish when I was a young person, I could have pressed rewind on some of the people that were constantly harboring on me about how I needed to do this and that. It was like, well, it sure is convenient. You can see all of my mess-ups as a teenager, but I can't see yours. And what we need to understand is, is that discouragement comes when we take that which the present generation is doing and make it as if it's nothing. This is what the older people were doing, whether they knew it or not, they were doing so and bringing great discouragement to the people. Notice there are internal reasons for discouragement. There are internal reasons. Last week I really let you have it, and so this week I'm going to take some of the blows, and I'm going to tell you that I, while being a very optimistic person, when I serve the Lord, uh, there is a lot of internal discouragement. What will inevitably happen is I will go all out for serving the Lord, and I will be spent. And I will tell you that where we usually become discouraged, just look at Elijah's life, the prophet, when he became most discouraged was when he was hungry and when he was tired. And I will tell you my greatest times of discouragement are on Sunday nights. I lay down on the couch after a day of ministry, and I begin to rewind uh, the day of ministry that was a part of. And I begin to hear the words of the devil, what you're doing, man, it's... It wasn't that important. You're not changing anybody's life. You're going, going, going. You could have done this for yourself, or you could have gone and done that with the family. What you're doing is nothing. And so I become discouraged. And how do I become discouraged? I grow pessimistic about my work. And I do so as saying, you know what? Nobody really notices. Now, I'm going to be real with you. I'm going to tell you exactly what happened. I don't want you to go and do this today because then I'll really feel weird. But a couple, I guess it was last week, I was, I was on Facebook, and it must have been Appreciate Your Pastor Day on Facebook, okay? The problem was is you guys didn't get the memo, okay? Because I'm going through Facebook, and I'm sitting there, and it's Sunday night, and I'm looking, and, and I'm seeing, of course, all my friends that attend other churches going, wow, pastor so-and-so brought it. I love it when he brings the word. And I am so blessed to have a wonderful preacher at my church, pastor so-and-so. And, -so, and, and I'm just going, okay, it, someone must have gotten the memo. So I'm going to look, and, and I go, Amanda, nobody said anything about me. And Amanda says, Come on, buddy. You wailed on them. They're not going to say anything nice today. That wasn't the kind of sermon. I mean, you laid into them. And so here's the thing I want you to know. Pessimism can come to even a pastor. 
the most optimistic of people. And we need to be careful of that, and we need to be ready for that. And where does it come from? My friends, it comes when we start comparing ourselves with others. The people in Haggai's day were comparing themselves to what God had done in the life of their forefathers. Look at how great Solomon's temple is. Look how wonderful it is. And we start comparing ourselves to those around us. Can I tell you, the moment you start comparing, and I'll tell you what, one of the biggest, one of the biggest temptations for a pastor is to compare my church with the church down the street. Look at the size. Look at, look at all the activities that are going on. Look at, at all of this. And, and we need to be real quick, careful about this. And I'll tell you, it gets real hard now that every church has a website and you can see all that's going on. And, and here's the thing. Pastors are not the only ones that deal with comparisons because there's some of you today that are comparing your spouse to the person sitting down the pew from you. You're comparing your children to the family down the pew from you or the, the people in the other service that their kids are all great and their kids are all getting A's and their kids seem to have no problems at all. We compare our jobs with others and we become discouraged. Well, look at so-and-so. They seem to have everything all put together. Let me tell you something. When we compare, we fall into a trap. Here's the thing. Our perspective and comparisons are always skewed. Here's what happens. When I compare myself against you, I will no doubt, unless I've got a real big issue with pride, but usually when we compare, we're, we're looking at others with an elevated view and ourselves with a devalued view. Does that make sense? We look at them and we say, wow, they've got everything going for them. And we look at all the good things that are happening in so-and-so's life, and we don't see all of the fault lines and cracks, that they're real people with real problems, with real issues. Yeah, their kid may be on the honor roll, but they may not be walking with the Lord like your son or daughter is. And so don't be comparing that I wish my kid was this or that against other kids because it's not a true assessment. These people were looking at the size and the grandeur of the temple of Solomon and were then putting themselves as if being failures. And as a result of that, they were getting a faulty view, a faulty perspective on what God wanted them to live out. Now notice a couple other internal ones, just very quickly. They had pursued the view that externals were more important, more important than the internal part of the heart. That God was really concerned about the size of the temple and the beauty of the temple instead of what went on in the temple. And we can do that as well. We look at churches and say, wow, look at these great big buildings. Look at all this campus that they have. And they must be doing something great. And little do we know that the church may be a, wild mi a, wi a mile wide, but an inch deep. Externals are not always the thing. Notice one final internal thing, and that is that when we serve God and we do what God has called us to, that our reward is not always instant. And so sometimes when we serve and we work and no one thanks us for it and no one says anything about it and, and we go about our work and we, we're doing, we're doing and doing and nobody cares, sometimes God says that the reward isn't today. It isn't today. This was a discouraging week for me and, and I share that because usually God puts me through a week that I have to preach through. And I was so encouraged with this. I didn't share the first, in the first uh, service this. But I got a card out of nowhere from a family in um, Florida 
that wrote me a card that said, we've been listening to your sermons. We got one of your CDs from someone. We don't even know where we got it. But we got a CD of one of your sermons. And we've been listening to your sermons online. And our family has come to know Christ through your preaching. And I said, holy cow. Nobody says anything nice to me on Facebook. But at least some people in Florida love me. Okay? God wants us to know that it's not always what we see in the here and now. I said, what sermons? I, I wanted to find out what sermons they were, okay? And I read down in the card, what's the sermon series? It must have been, man, I really brought it last week. They must have gotten saved last week. And it was from months or years ago, the book of Titus, when we were going through the book of I don't even remember the book of Titus and what we preached. And God's using that work to save people. And I'm encouraged by that, but we need to understand that what God does isn't always in the instant. Now you say, well, Tim, where in the world do you get all of this? I want you to notice a couple things. We gotta get going here. I know we've got fathers we need to celebrate, so we'll get moving very quickly here. But notice a couple things. He says, hey, the glory isn't as great as it used to be. But here's the thing I want you to know. He says, in a little while, I'm going to shake the nations. In a little while, you're going to see that the glory of this temple is greater than the glory of the former temple. In this house, I'm going to bring peace. In this house, I'm going to bring my presence. So here's the thing that I want you to do. God says you don't need to be discouraged. God's got a plan. But what we need to do is two things. We need to see, notice number two, we need to seize the courage that God demands. This point is very simple and very straightforward. There are two things that we need to do. He says we need to be strong and we need to work. That means we have to have the right attitude and the right action. Notice three times in the text we see be strong, be strong, be strong. You don't need to be a scholar of Hebrew or of Greek or of a Bible scholar to know that when God says things more than once, he wants us to listen. And what God wants you to know, as he wanted the people of Haggai's day to know, in your time of most discouraged moments, that you are to be strong. There's a couple of things about being strong. Number one, being strong means being equal to the task before you. Now, God had shared be strong numerous times before. That should have been an encouragement to the people in Haggai's day. He told Moses to be strong before Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. He went to Joshua, God did, in Joshua chapter 1, and numerous times told Joshua, be strong and courageous. David went to his son, led by God, when Solomon was about to build his temple, and he told Solomon to be strong. Why would he say be strong? Because when God is with us, we can be equal to the task. So whatever is discouraging you this morning, whatever you find yourself being, uh, finding yourself failing in this morning, God says, I want you to be strong knowing that you are equal to the task. But to be able to do that, you've got to do the right action, and that is work. Notice he says you need to work. The house that God was wanting built wasn't going to be built on them walking around saying, we're strong. They're wearing the, the first edition of the Live Strong bracelets, okay? That wasn't good enough. They had to get down on their hands and knees and get to work and start building the house of God. They needed to be obedient, not just in word, but in action. 
And when they did that, they would be able to live out the life that God was calling them to live. Here's the thing that I know about the strength that God gives. When God says for us to do something, it always is able to be done. What I mean by that is God never says, I want you to jump 30 feet into the air. God knows we can't do it. He's limited our ability to be able to jump that high. So he doesn't put that in Scripture. But when God says, be strong, he says, I'm going to empower you to be able to do it. So whatever discouragement, whatever the devil's telling you today, uh, uh, trying to discourage you, whatever person is trying to be critical in your life, to keep you from doing what you have been called to do, God says, when you trust me, and when you obey me, and you get to work, you'll accomplish the task that I have for you. Isn't that a great solace for us? That God's work can be done? This is why the Apostle Paul said that we are to abound in the work of God. God doesn't call ministry a hobby. He doesn't call it fun and games. He calls it work. Because it's going to mean more about, uh, it's more than inspiration, it's perspiration. We got to roll up our sleeves. We got to work hard. I like what the Apostle Paul says to the people at Corinth. He says, especially to the men, you need to act like men and abound in the work of the Lord. Get to work, roll up your sleeves, and get the job done. Because with the strength that God gives, you can do it. Now, here's the thing. How do we do it? Notice the final thing we need to see, is that is our third point this morning, that we need to then secure, we need to secure the comfort that God wants to deliver. Now, our perspective hasn't changed at this point. All we know is that things are tough and that what we may be doing may not have the impact of what previous generations have. And God's trying to encourage his people. And so here is where God lays it out. He says, you want to stop being discouraged? Then take on my comfort. How does God deliver this comfort? Notice there are three things. He says, number one, I want to speak to my presence. Notice he says, I am with you, according to verse 4. As you serve me, as you honor me, I'm going to be here with you. For some of you, you're discouraged right now because you feel like you're walking alone. You feel like you're trying to do it all by yourself. But if you call yourself a child of God this morning, just as in Haggai's day, God is with you. Now God wants to give you a booster shot of his presence. Notice, he doesn't just say, I am with you. But notice again, and the repetition of it, again, is something we need to see in the text. Notice all the times that he says, now I am with you, declares not just the Lord, but the Lord of hosts. He goes on and he says uh, numerous times in verse 6, thus says the Lord of hosts. In verse 8, he says, Lord of hosts. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts. Verse 9, the Lord of hosts. What in the world does the Lord of hosts mean? The Lord of the hosts is the military name of God. This is the God of armies, angel armies. And what God is saying, not only am I with you, but let me tell you a little bit about my resume. I'm the God who destroys invading armies. I am the God who can have a little boy stand before a giant and slam with a smooth stone. I am the God of teenagers who stand before a nation. Little guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they can be thrown in the fire and they do not get burned. I am the God who always wins. The God that is with you 
even as discouraged as you may be today, the God that is with you always wins. He never loses. When I was a freshman, I, I had an enemy. He was a junior. He was a bully. I, I, probably the meanest guy that I can remember in all of my years of school. And I remember in the first couple days, I'd gotten on the bad side of the bully. And it was not a good thing to be on the bad side. And I just wanted to do everything in my power to stay away from this guy. And I remember I was running late for class, and I was running through the hallways to get to my class. And as I was running, I had to turn the corner in our high school. There was two long hallways that intersected at one spot. And I took the corner a little too narrow, if you will. And all I remember is hearing a bang and being on the ground. And looking up, there was my friend, the junior bully. And he grabbed me, picked me up, and he says, all right, I've had enough with you, freshman. Now I'm going to show you what being in high school is all about. And at that point, you just kind of close your eyes and you just take the beating, right? And I'm closing my eyes, I'm waiting for the beating, and the punch never comes, but I hear a voice that says, leave him alone. He's with me. And I open my eye, kind of squinting, kind of looking, ready to still get the punch. And there's my bigger, badder senior brother standing behind him. And the guy turns around and says, what do you mean he's with you? It's my brother. You don't mess with my brother. And if you mess with my brother, you're going to mess with me. And if anybody remembers my older brother, you didn't mess with my older brother. He was a tough cookie. And here's the thing I want you to remember. The devil, cynical people, and circumstances are standing there. They want to beat you up. But greater than an older brother, we've got God with us. And he will say, He's with me. She's with me. You can't mess with them. Some of you feel beat up by the devil right now. And I want you to know something. The devil has to go and ask permission to mess with you. And they gotta go to, he has to go to God and he has to say, I want to mess with your servant Tim or your servant so-and-so. And God says, yeah, you can do it. Remember, just go to the story of Job. If the devil's beating you up, the devil, every time he did anything to Job, had to go to God. Because here's the thing you need to remember. This is theology about the devil. The devil's a dog on the leash of God. He's a dog. And he's on God's leash. He can only do what God says. And that's what the presence of God should do in our lives. Notice there's a promise. He says, hey, if you wondered if I was with you now, let me just tell you about who I've been with before. He says, hey, just as in my covenant that I have made when you came out of Egypt, I am with you just as I was with Moses, just as I was with Joshua, just as I was with all these others. My covenant of me staying true to them is true to you today. You may feel like nobody knows you. You may feel today like nobody cares, and there is one who does. We sang about it. Oh, how he loves us. God loves us. He cares for us, and he has a wonderful plan for us. And here's the thing. God says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, what can man do to me? Notice if that's not enough, God moves us to the future and he gives a prophecy. Notice the text says, I'm going to shake some things up. This building that you're building, you don't think it's that great? Here's the thing that God's going to teach them. God's going to say, hey, in a little while, and sometimes it's hard to understand God's little whiles, 
because a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day to God. Here's the thing. God says in a little while, the house you're building, people of Haggai's day, it's going to surpass the old one. All of its adornments and finery will be nothing. And here's why. He says, my glory is going to surpass in this house that of the former house. How so, God, 500 years from now, Jesus Christ is going to enter this house. And Jesus is going to come in. And remember, this is what goes on in that temple. Let's not forget this. In that temple, a couple peasant people named Mary and Joseph are going to bring a baby. And in that house, Simeon's going to hold up that baby. And he's going to say, now the servant of God can depart in peace. I have seen the coming of the Messiah. That same temple, in that same house, Jesus is going to come at 12 years of age. And he's going to astound the rabbis. And he's going to astound the teachers of the law. And he's going to tell them about his father's house. At 30-some years of age, Jesus is going to walk into this house. And he's going to knock over tables and he's going to knock over the money changers and he's going to say in this house this house will be a place of prayer it's in this house that Jesus is going to roll open the scroll of Isaiah and he's going to read it and he's going to say in your hearing this scripture has been fulfilled these people that thought this house they were building was nothing was going to become the house that Jesus would fill and some of you right now are discouraged. You find yourself feeling like you're not accomplishing anything. God says, in my time and in my ways, I'm going to build something beautiful that will come in its right time and place. So don't be discouraged. Don't be down. But get God's perspective. God is at work, and he's building something that you and I have no idea as to what he's going to do. The scripture reminds us, and let me close with this, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for his people. He's got a plan for you. He's got a plan for me. Our job is to be strong and to work and leave the results to God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and I thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would take our discouragements and you would throw them by the wayside. Lord, you would do so by giving us your perspective. Lord, in this world, we're going to have troubles. We're going to have disappointments. We're going to have fears. But we are told not to fear, but to be strong and to be busy at doing what you've called us to do. And so, Lord, I pray that we would do so. I pray that we would move beyond the discouragements by putting on your eyes and having your perspective that even though it seems like what we're doing is small, that it won't change much, that we know that our feeble attempts at serving you in the hands of the Almighty can change the world. Lord, I think of how you have changed the world by just using one person, both young and old. How you took two spies in Israel, two older guys, and, and Lord, you took them, and with the perspective that you gave them, even though some said we are just grasshoppers in their sight, Two older guys would say, we can take them. And Lord, you allowed them to do so. So Lord, I pray that you would enable us to have eyes of faith, that we would dream big dreams, knowing that you are able to accomplish the very things that concern us today, so that we may, by faith, live out the obedient life you've called us to. 
Take those discouragements away, Lord, and give us a perspective that the discouragements of this world are the things that make us stronger and make us hungrier to obey you. Now, Lord, send us off into this world, the world that brings so many struggles and so much criticism and cynicism. Lord, I pray that we would be able to be the light and we would be able to live out the calling you have for us today in light of Haggai's example this morning. We give it to you, Lord, for you to receive all the glory and honor through the lives that we live. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.